0: So, in this beautiful spring day, finally spring is here. Let's say later today you go out, you take a walk, you're with friends, you're enjoying the countryside, just glorious, having a good talk, a good walk, everything is just wonderful. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, an arrow flies through the air and lands right in the middle of your thigh. Ouch. And as you go down to the ground, you recognize it's actually worse than just the arrow flying through the air. It appears that the tip of the arrow, which is now firmly embedded in your thigh, has also been poisoned. So you are really in jeopardy. And as your friends are all prepared to run away and ask, no, 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 it's because they're they're concerned about you, not because they're running away. Although maybe it says something about your friends, that was your first interpretation. They're running away because they want to go get medical help. And you say, no, no, no. Before we can treat this wound and get the poison out of me, I want to know who shot this arrow. I want to know their gender. I want to know where they grew up. I want to know how old they are. I want to know how young they are. I want to know all of these things. And before you can figure any of these things out, you die. Now, this is a retelling of a very old story. It's from one of the Buddha's sermons in which he is answering a disgruntled follower, someone who is unhappy that the Buddha has given not enough specific answers about the deep metaphysical questions. What's the exact relationship between body and soul? Does the world go on forever? Is this world infinite or other worlds infinite? And the Buddha story was this. It is just like that person who gets shot from an arrow, doesn't know where they come from, and spends all their time wanting to identify from where, who, why, instead of doing the thing that should be done, which is actually taking out the freaking arrow in all our lives, and particularly this is what this answer was in our spiritual and religious lives, there's a tendency to get lost sometimes in esoteric knowledge, you know, the hidden knowledge, the metaphysical knowledge, none of which, if all traditions are honest, can be ever exactly known. And instead of getting lost in that search for that esoteric knowledge, to instead attend to real human life real suffering, real difficulty, real capacity to awaken and to flourish. Whatever has come before and whatever will come after right here, right now is what we can know most fully. So today's song that begins this new series, it is about recognizing our human tendency to get lost in what we don't know, in the many, many, many words, in our heads, under our beds, all around us, instead of turning to the people that might need us most, sometimes especially when those people are ourselves. This is the refrain all throughout the song. Ain't it like most people? I'm no different. We love to talk on things we don't know about. Ain't it like most people? I'm no different. We love to talk on things we don't know about. Now, I got to believe the Avid brothers, they're the ones who sang this song originally. That they chose an intentional title, the 10,000 word, that that 10,000 is a significant word in both Taoism and Buddhism, 10,000 things is just kind of ancient shorthand for the whole variety of phenomenon throughout the entire universe, everything that exists, the 10,000 things they say. That word myriad, you know, which means basically just a lot, comes from the ancient Greek for 10,000. Lost in the myriad, the costs of being lost in the myriad. The costs are immense, and this song spells them out. But we can learn to come home. We can learn to come right back home to our lives and pay attention. The Avid brothers in this song describe a seeker and a traveler. Seeking and traveling are wonderful things. Many of us have come into Wellsprings because we are seekers and travelers looking for a place where we really belong. At this point, it's really important to listen to some of the wisdom of our spiritual ancestor, Henry David Thoreau, and he said, we should come home from adventures and perils and discoveries every day with new experience and new character. That last word is really important. We can accumulate through this life all kinds of wild experiences and experience upon experience upon experience, but that last phrase, and new character, because nothing is wrong with our travels and our seeking. There's so much right with our travels and our seeking, but the goal is not just to arrive or travel in style. The goal is to arrive and develop within ourselves ourselves deeper character so that whether we are working or on vacation or parenting or taking a break or whatever it is, we are knowing that our character is deepening, lost in the worlds of words. We hear that first cost in that song, so many words, paralysis by analysis. I can't tell you the number of people I've talked to over the years say, I really want a spiritual practice, but I keep reading until I find the right one. That's just not the way to do it. No information will ever give you the spiritual practices, aha, this is yours. We live in an information-saturated age, and again, there's so much wonderful about that, but the risk, the shadow side, is that we can just keep accumulating knowledge and accumulating knowledge and accumulating knowledge and just stay as unhappy as we always are. I mean, he has so much knowledge, and yet he cannot describe even how to hold his hands. <laughs> its like this, is like this, is like this, all these different ways. How do I do it? Pretty soon we're giving hand signals to ourselves, and we don't know which direction we're going. Keeping ourselves from simple presence. That's the challenge with all the choices that we face. And the cost even deepens in the song. He says, "I know you need me in the next room over, but I'm stuck in here all." paralyzed, all within himself, all not able to acknowledge the other lives that are around him and one life in particular that sounds like is in pain, in our inner and outward journeys It is really all about how we are shaping our character, how we are growing those first and fine fruits of our lives. I mean, this really hit home for me, and I think I shared this with you before, but it just absolutely hit home, so I had to share it again today. Story of about 11 months ago when I was coming off an eight-day silent retreat, just absolutely gorgeous and beautiful and deepening and challenging. In the first four days, I just wanted to flee, and in the final four days, I didn't ever want to go anywhere else. But finally, I, I I had to come home, You know, I wanted to come home, but but I knew I I I knew I wasn't going to. I I knew I wasn't going to get six hours of meditation and two hours of yoga and three hours of walking meditation, and people weren't going to serve me my meals in absolute silence at home anymore. That wasn't going to be the way it was going to be. And so the last thing we studied on the retreat from when the teachers were about equanimity, equanimity, which is the ability to be in the midst of our lives with a kind of um, coolness that is an indifference, just the ability to witness our lives. And I was born with about this much equanimity. <laughs> but, you know, I said, okay, I'm, I'm going I'm to re-enter my life from the non-anxious place. And, and, I, and I came back home, and my wife had had a, a miserable week, I mean, a... a, a difficult week at work. And then for the second time in a row when I was gone, she had to put down one of our beloved pet bunnies. She had to do this on her own. And and then to make it worse, her car was like something was going wrong with it. So the first thing we had to do when I arrived home was to drive her car over. And when I came back home I could see immediately that she had really had a struggling week. And Thinking, oh, so wise here. Eight days of silence. All my words will just be gold and flow for me. <laughs> and, I mean, I was trying to fix it. I was trying to solve it. I was trying to solve her. I was trying to come up with you know, the solution. All of it was just making the situation worse. And finally, we just decided, well, let's leave home. She'll drive her car over to the service station. I'll drive my car. I'll pick her up. And on the way, I figured, you know what? No, I'm not getting it. This is not equanimity. This is not the ability to be in the presence of another person struggling and suffering, and not to want to find the exact right thing so it all goes away so I can feel less anxious, And of course she can be in less pain. And so she dropped her cars off, her car off, she got into my car, and I turned to her and I said, "Listen." I said, "I know I was trying to give you the right thing before, as I saw it." I was trying to come up with the right words. But here's the thing, is that the more I try and do that, the more it makes for you a bad situation worse, and just increases the gulf between us. So I'm going to shut up, and I'm going to be here, and I'm sorry you're suffering. And with that, no words, just tears from her side of the car, and we went on, and we had a good night. We reconnected. Enlightenment has nothing to do with how much we know or how much we can control. Enlightenment is about our true, deep behavior of connecting to ourselves and to other lives in this life. There's an old saying that if you really want to judge a saint as a saint, see how the saint treats their dog. See how they treat the vulnerable life around them. I mean, there's a version of this in just about every spiritual tradition that there is in the Christian scriptures, uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 13. You know, I've, I've done it more than I care to acknowledge at so many weddings because it's turned into saccharine love poetry, and that's not really what Paul was talking about here. You know, love is patient, love is kind, and just wait a few years, folks, until you really live into that, by the way. <laughs> you know, that's, don't, don't write a check your ass can't cash there in marriage, you know? But that's the thing, it's about mature love is what Paul is really talking about. He said, you know, you can solve all mysteries and you can have all gifts of prophecy. You can see what's coming up or what should come up. You can have all faith. But ultimately, he says, if you don't have love, none of that is worth anything at all. None of it is worth anything at all. It is worthless, he says. This past week, many of us became familiar with this man again, even if we hadn't seen him in a while. Roger Ebert, who grew up and grew mature, and this quote has been shared a lot, and I'm going to share it right now, but it's the same thing that I've been saying before. It's all about how we treat ourselves and each other. He says, kindness covers all my political beliefs, no need to spell them out. I believe that if at the end of it all, according to our abilities, we have done something to make others a little happier and something to make ourselves a little happier, then that is about the best we can do. To make others less happy is a crime. To make ourselves unhappy is where all crime starts. We must try to contribute to the joy of the world. This is true no matter what our problems, our health, our circumstances, we must try. I didn't always know this, and I'm happy I lived long enough to find it out. So thank you, Mr. Ebert. You taught me how to watch movies, and you also taught us all a lot more than just that. We hear the echoes in this song. This is kind of a young person's song, someone who's in about achievement and making their way in the world, and they still have to come back home, and they recognize that sometimes being out there with that public face, it doesn't match the face of those people who really know us. And so this awareness dawns on the singer in this song. It talks about those good times. Those good times come with prices, and sometimes people only want those good times. And they tell jokes at others' expense, at anyone's expense except their own. Would they laugh if they knew who paid? Years ago, I remember having an argument with a guy who was kind of a friend, and actually, I still keep in touch with him. Uh, an argument because um, we were watching uh, like a late night show one time, and they made a joke about a politician who I couldn't stand, and I laughed. And he got mortally offended. Like really indignant. And his big thing was he didn't think I was respecting this person's authority. This person had authority. This person deserved respect. And what I think of actually of my friend's argument right now, I think of this. <laughs> you will respect my authority. Those of you who know Cartman on his big wheels playing the you know, bigoted southern lawman, you will respect my authority. That's kind of what my friend's argument came down to. Now, here's the irony is this friend like grew up and is now like this amazing progressive spiritual activist. So we all grow. I think about this when I'm telling a joke, and I think it's good guidance for all of us who tell jokes and who like humor. If we're telling a joke about someone or someones who may have less power than us, who are vulnerable... We are likely to be turning them into an image of our own minds rather than accepting the reality of their lives by turning them into a punchline. And for those of us who have power and construe that in whatever way you understand it for your own life, sometimes it means taking a stand against those who are treating other people as punchlines. A Facebook friend of mine, someone I really do respect this past week, wrote this, when I pointed out to the men at the next table that they sounded like a couple of misogynistic pigs, I hadn't calculated how uncomfortable the awkward silence afterward would feel. (laughs) I hope they're flying on the other airline. Now, to do this takes courage. But even more than courage, it takes humility. It means that we have to be concerned about how other People feel about us more than just how our ego feels about us. We have to be willing to be uncomfortable. And I've done this at times in my life, probably not nearly as much as I should have done, but I have. I have ended conversations very often in the company of other white men saying, uh uh-uh, uh, uncool. And I'm a redhead. I turn beat red when I get embarrassed. I mean you I it shows. But that's the one way that at least I can say, do you know at whose expense you are making this joke? The words you use matter. The words we use matter. And so to, to make this kind of humility, this kind of humility that is actual real strength that goes beyond our egos, our false face, and to recognize it's not weakness even if it makes us feel weak, is part of what he's saying in the third stanza, the third verse in the song. being strong enough to question the false face, the clothes I wore out there I will not wear around you. Maybe that's the clothes of the rock star or the clothes of the minister or, you know, whatever your image is of yourself that you think you have to maintain. The clothes I wore out there I cannot wear around you. That's wisdom coming home saying there's got to be something deeper than just our image, our persona, of sometimes what we want to protect, project or protect in this life. And yet here, I love this in the song, you get the ego starting up self-justifying. Like, imagine yourself in this. You come home after a long day or a long trip or someone comes home to you and it's been a long day for you, and, and, and you just you rush right into almost the kind of sounds that uh, the songwriter makes Oh, you know they were questioning me. They'll be quick to point out all our shortcomings, and all the experts have had their doubts. You know you can hear the self-justification in that. You can hear you're saying yourself, "I can at least." Hear myself saying that to my to my spouse or to a friend, and then it stops, and it goes right back into that verse, that chorus. Ain't it like most people? I'm no different. We love to talk th- talk about things we don't know about instead of launching into, ooh, this is how I have to protect my ego, we can ask a different question of ourselves and other people. How is it with you? How is it with your heart? What's going on? Treat others and treat life itself as a blessing inquiry and a blessed interest. It's said that St. Francis, St. Francis of Assisi, his prayer, for hours he would say at night, were questions. Who are you, God, and who am I? Who are you, God, and who am I? Who are you, God, and who am I? Now, you might think this sounds like narcissism. Get out of your own head. But this is Francis of Assisi. His life was about service to the least of us, to the vulnerable, in seeing the holy now absolutely everywhere. This is what John Shelby Spong, the former very progressive bishop of Episcopal, Episcopal Bishop of Newark, New Jersey, said prayer as preparation. Prayer as preparation to lead a deep and connected life. This is the connection, by the way, between two of our core values, encouraging everyday spiritual practice and living with integrity, having the humility and vulnerability necessary so that we are able to make positive change. That's what it is to cultivate the field of our own hearts and to take time to do that and to know very often it does not happen simply by accident. It doesn't happen by accident for me. I know that. I think of St. Francis's namesake, the Pope. I think of what appears to be his humility in my own. Because here's the thing I love the symbolism of the actions that he's taken so far, but I don't know the substance. A lot of my Facebook friends seem to really know this substance. He is this, or he is that. <laughs> I mean, you know, I do know that when he washed the feet of female prisoners, he irked a lot of people that I got a little bit of pleasure out that he irked. <laughs> but here's the thing. It's still just a symbol. I'll judge him in time by his behavior. It's to see if this foot washing really changes the Hostility we've seen from the Vatican to the American nuns who do the work in our country with and for on behalf of the least of these. Will the Church start to soften its its teachings and its harshness on the status of women and GLBT people? Because here's the thing, I'm going to reserve judgment. Because for a UU minister to critique the Pope, <laughs> fish in a freaking barrel. You all expect it out of me, right? Well, not that you expect it out of me, but it's kind of obvious. So for all of us, whatever our political disposition, whatever our spiritual aspirations, to learn, to twist around, turn around that humility and train it on ourselves. And to know that as we move through this life, yes, we will make judgments, but to know that we all have that tendency to speak about things we do not truly know about and to recognize there are costs to doing that. If we can commit to this path of humility, we can find that soul, that sense of soul that is bigger than any role, bigger than any symbolism, bigger than any outward sign of what we think our lives are or what other people's lives are or should be. And we can get to that place. We can cultivate that place, which is really not a place that we reach. It's a way of being each and every day. And I would say that it probably speaks to what drew many of you here into a congregation like Wellsprings. So many of us are searching for an honest life, an authentic life, a life in which we're not just putting up a false face that we're projecting or protecting. That authentic life comes in the form very often of an honest vulnerability about what we know and don't know. And we can live this way, we can recognize that the limits of our knowledge can become the very beginning of our loving, of our deep connecting with ourselves and with this life. Enlightenment and awakening is not about how much we know. It's about how much we show and share our willingness to connect and to love. Walt Whitman was the guy who wrote, or at least we stole it from him, the words of our mission. He asked a question at one point, and I think it's the question that's really what the song is all about. Will the whole come back then? Will the whole come back home? Does all sit here with you, with the mystic, unseen soul? Can it come home? We know so much. And may we affirm here today that the goal of all our knowing is to connect ever more truly, more deeply. And more lovingly with this life, our own lives, and the lives of people around us. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. God of awakening hearts, may we be wise enough to recognize the necessary distinction between image and reality. May we, even if we are fearful, have that courage and humility necessary to go deeper into the very heart of our lives. This is what courage means, to take, to give, and to have heart. If we need heart, may we take it. When we have heart, may we give it. May we be a heartful and awakening people. Amen.